Step right up, step right up. Experience the wonders, the marvels. You'll be astounded. Step right up to the carnival of basic needs. Uh, excuse me, what did you say? Step right up to the carnival of basic needs. Carnival of basic needs? Mm, I just wanted to get a corn dog. Food is a basic need. Congratulations, you are in the right place at the Carnival of Basic Needs. Okay, how do I get my corn dog? Well, you've already identified food as a basic need. Time for round two. Step right into the tent. Okay, I'm in the tent. What do you see? A tent. Correct again! Shelter and housing, another basic need. Moving on. Wait, this isn't very good shelter or housing. I don't think it meets a basic need. It has everything to meet the minimum standard for basic needs. Take a look around. What do you see? A lot of mustard stains. Well, corn dogs are a basic need. These mustard stains are moldy, and it's not sanitary. Look, they have attracted a whole mischief of mice. A mischief of mice? Yeah, that's the collective noun for a group of mice. Cool. But that is beside the point. This tent is not safe for people to live in. But it's a tent. Basic need met. Nope. Look at the poles used to hold this tent up. Well, they, they aren't even made of wood. What are these poles? That is 100% pure candy cane from the Holiday Village clearance sale. Okay, that is not structurally sound. But it sure is whimsical. That counts for something. Mm, Nope. As soon as it rains, this structure is going to fall down. And on the people who would be living here. You couldn't pay me to live here. So I couldn't pay you to live here, but guess how much someone does pay to live here? Negative a million dollars. Wrong answer. What? How is that possible? No one can live here. What what are you charging rent? One half to a third of the resident's income. That's preposterous. You can't charge someone to live here. This doesn't cover any basic needs. Who lives here? They need better housing. It's me. I live here. Please, help me. Mm, Only if you show me to the corn dogs. About the corn dogs. They are pretty light on the corn and really heavy on the dog part. Hi. This is Tane Danger from Danger Boat Productions and the Theater of Public Policy. This is a new podcast that we're doing all about housing. And you might be wondering, why do a a podcast about housing? Uh, And there's a variety of reasons, and we're going to dive into it some today. But one of the key things is that Theater of Public Policy for years has been doing shows all over the state of Minnesota and honestly all over the country almost no matter where we are or what issue we're talking about somehow housing comes up in those conversations 
And so we could literally be doing a show about agricultural policy or unemployment levels or about roads and bridges. And somehow every single one of those shows always ties back to housing somehow. So thought, oh, well, we should probably actually just investigate this a little bit more. And as you might imagine, uh, we started uh, diving into this and discovered very quickly that it's a humongous subject. We wanted to try and get started by asking somebody who's a lot smarter about this and thinks about this in a big 360 degree way, what are we doing here? And what good could we make out of doing a podcast about housing? So we are very excited to have with us Professor Ryan Allen. Uh, he is an associate professor of community and economic development in the urban affairs and regional planning department of the University of Minnesota Humphrey School of Public Affairs, of which I am an alum. Thank you so much for being here, Professor Allen. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tane. What's the pitch you can help me make why people should care about housing policy? Of all the things in the world to care about and to worry about, why spend any amount of time devoting brain power to thinking about housing? Housing is foundational. You can't think about other aspects of life and aspirations for where people want to be without first coming back to basics and getting housing right. If we don't get it right, it leads to a ripple effect in people's lives that greatly shortchange their potential. It leads to bad outcomes or worse outcomes in schools for kids. It, it leads to less economic mobility for adults and everything in between. So if you, if you care about health policy, if you care about employment issues, if you care about issues related to racial segregation, you've got to get housing policy right first. Because in some ways, it's the root for making improvements in all of the areas that I've just mentioned. At the end of the day, housing is a platform upon which you build a lot of your social, professional, and economic lives. And so one of the reasons that you've I think correctly phrased it as, as so encompassing and complex um, is because it touches on so many facets of our lives. So when you're teaching housing policy, where do you start? Where, where would you begin if this were sort of like a, a course curriculum? Well, so kind of a housing 101 is starting to think about housing just as I phrased it as a platform, right? Um, very simply, there are different ways you can structure housing. You can uh, you can own it, or you can you can use it as a renter. If you're using it as a renter, who actually owns it? Is it the government? Uh, is it a private interest, or is it something in between? And then very quickly from there, uh, you can start to think about what I think are in some ways some of the more important in interesting issues. So what I mean by that is location. Housing is, is a bundle of amenities, it's a, it's a square footage, it's um, a certain quality, it, it's got design aspects to it, but it's also uh, situated in place. And so are you near or far from schools? Uh, do you have a public park nearby? Uh, what kind of transit access do you have? Uh, all of those things are aspects of housing that researchers focus on intensely. Uh, and so in a housing policy class, you got to touch on all of them. So one uh, just basic question, again, I can imagine us diving into is, why isn't there just enough housing for everybody? If that's the most basic thing, is that everybody needs shelter, 
why haven't we cracked that nut to start with? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question that is on many people's minds right now, actually. And so let me let me take us back a step. We have no fundamental right to housing in the United States. It's not written into the Constitution. Although if you go back far enough uh, in his second term, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his second inauguration speech called out housing as a point of a new bill of rights that he wanted to work on. And the idea here, in addition to healthcare and a lot of other things that he enumerated, was that housing was absolutely foundational, right? That if you didn't have housing, it became difficult to think about investing in your education and acquiring enough nutrition and all the other things that we know are important for living not only a, a, a kind of a fulfilling life, but having positive economic mobility and a variety of other things that people strive for. That, of course, did not come to fruition. The federal government started into an initial uh, foray into public housing. It very early on targeted middle-income people, in part to build a political constituency for that program, and thinking that it would, it would build out public housing to be more of a European-style model, where we would have you know, more than half of Americans eventually living in some kind of government-subsidized housing, uh, mm -hmm. like you might find uh, in, in a European country. What happened next was the Great Depression ended and the private real estate interests decided that was not a good idea to have to compete with the federal government uh, for tenants. And, uh, and, the, and the federal government did a strong pivot and maintain private market dynamics as the major way that housing is supplied in the United States. So with that as kind of the foundation for the story, what we've had more recently is a slowing growth in the, the amount of housing that's built. And so we have some supply and, uh, and demand dynamics going on there because we have a, a continually growing population and new households forming. And so more and more demand for housing, slower supply of housing coming online. And on top of all of that, we have a relatively stagnant income situation, particularly in the, in the lower half of the income distribution. When you put all those things together, what you get is a housing crisis. Uh, what you get is not necessarily lack of shelter, but what you get more uh, readily is people paying upwards of uh, a third to half of their incomes for housing. And that creates a lot of uncertainty in people's lives. So if, if your rent is coming due and you know it's gonna be, let's say as much as half of your household income, what does that leave left over for things like healthcare and food and investing in enrichment ac activities for your kids? And so, it's not lack of housing. There's lots of housing out there. It's the, it's the affordability issue that's most at the fore right now. Clearly, what people value in housing goes beyond the shelter piece very, very quickly. Like it, it matters where it is. It matters what it allows you to do. Um, and I'm curious how, from a housing policy perspective, you think about those things because it feels to me as somebody that isn't an expert in this, like there's a, a tension there where you might try and solve one problem of getting lots more housing to lower the price for people and deal with homelessness, but then adding all that extra housing creates a whole bunch of problems potentially on the other side where, where is that housing? Is it in the right places? Are you adding a bunch of housing where people don't want it? Is that sort of some of the central tension in just housing policy generally? Yeah, I think you've named some important tensions and there are of course others, but 
But just to, to dive a little deeper into some of the ones that you've teed up there, first of all, uh, in a market-driven housing market, as we have predominantly in the United States, the government regulations can shape and direct where housing is built, but rarely is the government in the business of creating the housing itself. Right? So we can create land use policies about where we believe housing would be best situated. We can map that housing onto existing transit infrastructure, for example. But when push comes to shove, if the market doesn't move, the housing doesn't get built. Similarly, we can create density ordinances, uh, as has been recently done in, in the city of Minneapolis, that, that allows more dense housing to be constructed across the city. Uh, and we can particularly focus greater residential density on, on certain parts of the city. Again, unless the market acts, nothing happens. In other words, government creates the parameters for the market to work. That's the situation we have right now. So with that in mind, a lot of those kind of rules around density can make housing cheaper to build or less cheap to build, right? Uh, think about more exclusionary kinds of land use or in density requirements and in far off suburbs as, uh, in comparison to central cities. And that can have an effect to be sure, right? In, in fact, Minneapolis is counting on that having an effect. We want more housing. We believe there are uh, the population growth is inevitable. And unless we want to become Seattle, or San Francisco, we have to have more of a balance. Why doesn't housing work in a traditional market function? Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I mean, maybe part of what you're saying is it does, but then it creates all kinds of problems. But you know, it, for you know the the libertarian listening, why is sure. it that we can't just sort of let the market figure all this out? Where does that fail? All right. So market mechanisms in the housing market can be very, very effective at producing housing, to be sure. When you combine market mechanisms with rules that create a floor for quality, which I think most reasonable people believe is appropriate, right? We need to create housing, but it should be housing that's safe. Right. right? So we don't, we're not creating housing that is like just made out of rusty nails and uh, scotch tape exactly. and saying that's a house. We're going to have some kind of standards, right? And so from a pure market perspective, that's an imperfection in the market, right? Because if someone's willing to pay for a house that's made of rusty nails and scotch tape, why then uh, the market should deliver that and allow them to live in it? There are a variety of reasons why that's a bad idea. But what the market does extraordinarily well uh, in the world of housing is cater to the upper half of the income distribution. There are very few households that earn above the median household income that are having trouble finding housing that works for them and that is of a reasonably high quality. On the other hand, the way that we've structured the market, producing housing for the lower half of the income distribution is extremely difficult. And it's, ex it's extremely difficult to do that in a, in a manner uh, where it's still affordable. And part of that certainly has to do with labor costs and, and regulatory burden and the kind of minimum building standards that we as a society have decided are appropriate. And so that means that fundamentally, when it comes to relying on the market, we're always going to be disappointed for what the market is able to provide on the lower half of the income distribution. My perception has been housing is a huge issue. There's a lot of problems. And as far as I can tell, there's not sort of just 
a simple solution. Anytime you maybe push on one aspect of trying to uh, create more affordable housing for people, there's some push somewhere else. Like the, you know, you're, you're pushing a basically a, a balloon and then, you know, it pops out somewhere else. And so there's always something that's sort of tense about this. Is that fair? Is that a good sort of setup for this or? I think that's fair. It has limits, right? Uh, I mean, of course there are limits to that, uh, to the way, of, to that framing of the, of the problem. But just to, to offer an example, once upon a time, we believed that it only, only, if only we could create new supply, right? If only we had more density, that that would solve the affordable housing problem. Of course, you know, anyone who's had a basic economics class can talk to you about, about these supply and demand curves. And, you know, and you can graphically show if you expand that supply that it's going to reduce prices and that would be great and we'll all be much happier. Um, so if you go back to why the market doesn't serve particularly well, the lower half of the income distribution, what that fundamentally means is that when we increase density, we're going to increase density of higher end housing, right? Okay, no problem, uh, because people who had been living in kind of lower quality housing can now buy that higher quality housing and that leaves a vacant unit for somebody of a lower income to take. It turns out that logic is sound but incredibly slow. Housing economists call that a filtering model where the, the, the high quality housing eventually filters over time down uh, into lower uh, income households because it deteriorates over time or it becomes obsolete. Um, it doesn't have an open floor plan like you see on HGTV or, or whatever. It turns out that it takes a generation for a housing that's built at the upper end of the distribution to move down to the median household. Um, and if we rely on the market to supply affordable housing, we're going to wait a long time for it to do it. Now, all that is to say, it would be exceptionally problematic from my perspective to not increase density, right? Because one thing I can tell you is that if you don't increase supply, you're definitely going to have a problem with prices. As more and more people, for example, want to move to the Twin Cities, if we stopped building housing altogether, that's not going to dampen all of that enthusiasm for moving here and people are going to get priced out. At the same time, uh, if we do increase the density, what some emerging research is showing us is that it actually can increase the prices of housing around it. Think of that new shiny development as an amenity for the neighborhood, and it actually increases the price of your house just by virtue of being close by to it. And for existing homeowners, that might be a fine thing because that's a housing appreciation and they'll, they'll see some value from that. But if you are wanting to buy into that neighborhood and have limited income, all of a sudden you're out of luck, right? Or if you're a renter, you're gonna get priced out potentially. So when these kind of more micro markets where we see a density going in, one of the emerging realizations we're having is that that can in the short run at least actually increase some prices for housing and lead to gentrification. We're still learning how that works and doing more research in that area, but the uh, initial research coming out is pointing in that direction. What is it that you'd want sort of somebody, a uh, regular person on the street to just know about housing and housing policy that maybe they don't already? So one of the things that I think should definitely be a takeaway is that as much as the government is involved uh, with the housing market in the United States, it is still overwhelmingly dominated by private actors. So the government creates parameters around where housing can be built and, and of what style and what density, 
But again, it's the private actors, it's the banks, mortgage brokers, uh, it's the real estate industry, it's the construction industry, and a variety of others that really make that market go. And so in comparison to many uh, nations that have a much more heavy presence of the state in the housing market, we are, we are very much the Wild West. We allow a free market to, to be the dominant player. When people think about government presence in housing, they often think about public housing. And to be sure, that's an important backstop for many households that are very low income. But many people probably don't realize that something like less than 3% of the housing units in the United States are public housing. It's an incredibly small proportion. The vast, vast majority of poor people live in private market housing, uh, not in government housing, not even in subsidized housing. The fact of the matter is that the government plays a relatively minor role in providing housing for, for low-income households. You've already alluded to you feel government should be more involved uh, in housing. Uh, so what would you want to see or what would you do, whether that's actually things you would immediately do or ways that you would change what your powers are as government to do things? So early on in American history during the Depression, we created public housing that worked. Um, it was high quality. It was relatively low density. It was kind of like townhouse style developments. So much more dense than your typical American suburb, but not the super block kind of monstrosities that public housing came to be associated with in the 50s and 60s. The quality was there. Um, the affordability was nearly there. And we had this great start. And then we stopped for a variety of reasons. So much so that now, of the households that qualify for federally subsidized housing, only one in four actually get it. That's an astounding statistic. If the government took that seriously and built housing that was of high quality and well-managed, we could free up the incomes for a lot of our households in America to do much more productive things with. They could be investing in their kids. They could be buying healthcare and making sure that they have enough medicine and food in the house. Serving one out of four uh, that qualify for this is, is, I think by any standards, a failure. It's not what we do with SNAP uh, food benefits. It's not what we do with healthcare benefits. Those are ones that if you qualify for it, you get it. And I believe the same should be true for housing. Let's talk a little bit about current events uh because we're recording this via Zoom uh, because we're all in quarantine these days uh, around COVID-19, which is obviously a health crisis and almost certainly an economic crisis as well. Um, having already lived through one housing crash in my life, I'm not excited about it happening again, but is it going to happen again? I think the, the, the smart money is on the yes uh, to that uh, question. If I could gaze into a crystal ball, I see it working something like this. We're now seeing massive uh, jobless claims that are sprouting up on a weekly basis. The most recent jobless claims were over six and a half million, far eclipsing anything we've seen historically in the United States. And I think for the foreseeable future, that's going to continue. As those people lose jobs, they therefore lose income, and therefore 
the ability to pay for their housing. What we know is that certainly for lower income households, but even middle income households do not have substantial savings for emergencies. Uh, there's just simply not gonna be enough of a backstop in many people's personal finances to be able to float them for very long. That means missed rental payments and missed mortgage payments. The government has now put in place various moratoria on evictions and foreclosures. Those will protect some, but not all. You're going to have to um, pay for housing eventually. So when that day comes, there is going to be a massive number of people, households, uh, that are in default or out of the terms of their lease. And landlords and banks are going to have to make a decision about uh, whether they exercise their option to evict or foreclose or do something else. In the intervening time, the government could step in and play a much more robust role. It remains to be seen whether or not that will happen. But um, at the end of the day, with that amount of evictions and foreclosures uh, that are potentially there, that's gonna wreak havoc in the uh, mortgage market and it's gonna wreak havoc in the construction market. And I predict that if we don't have some pretty dramatic steps taken, we're gonna have a similar housing crisis or perhaps worse than we had in 2008. Did we learn things in the 2008 housing crisis that are applicable here? Did we figure anything out that can help us maybe manage this? I think we learned some things. I think that, uh, and I think there'll be lessons that we have to relearn. I, I think that uh, in 2008, there was an instinct to bail out large financial institutions and neglect individual homeowners and renters. I think that to some extent, I think we know the right thing to do, and that's going to be to, in addition to paying attention to the banks, we have to pay attention to homeowners and renters uh, and, and provide them supports. I think that the other thing we learned uh, that I think is that has been put in place is that, particularly in a public health crisis, which demands uh, social distancing, you can't create an army of newly homeless people. Uh, that would be exactly going in the wrong direction for containing this virus. And so I applaud the efforts to uh, put a moratorium on evictions and, and foreclosures. The question becomes, is it enough? And I don't think most reasonable people believe that it is. Hmm. Is there anything else that you really want people to know or to think about in this world? You know, uh, if you're at a, if you, you're just sort of, again, uh, talking to folks uh, on the bus or down the streets and trying to uh, make sure that, you know, they know at least this about, about housing policy. What, is there anything like that that you really want to make sure we don't miss? There's a long history in America of believing that owning a home is, uh, is right up there with apple pie and grandma, right? That, that, that this is what it means to be American, to, to either own a home or strive to own a home. And I think that that narrative has been completely oversold, frankly. I, I think that uh, if we learned anything, going back to the last housing crisis, it is that owning a home in the wrong circumstances can be an absolute financial disaster. And that there's nothing particularly uh, sacred about uh, a home as an investment above and beyond an investment in another uh, uh, aspect of, of the financial world. Um, in fact, there's a lot of research that indicates that you'd be better off uh, putting your money into an S&P 500 index fund than, uh, than an appreciating home. 
so there are a lot of things to think through there. One of the things that we know about home ownership is that it's been built up as a, as a savings investment uh, and, and a way for, for particularly moderate income people to have some wealth creation. And there's certainly some truth to that, but it can, again, be oversold. At the same time, we also have this problem in America about mobility. We have this problem that, that job creation occurs in one area uh, and it's not always aligned well with where people uh, live. And one of the things we know is that home ownership can get in the way of mobility. It's just a lot more costly and difficult to move if you own your home than if you rent. There's a real strong place for the rental market in America. It's something that we don't um, put up on a pedestal like we do with home ownership, and we probably should, because it's got a lot going for it in terms of giving people mobility, uh, not locking them into a particular investment, and a variety of other things that, that can make it really, really attractive. Uh that's it. Those are all my questions. You've been, uh, this has been so phenomenal. And I mean, when I say those are all my questions, it's because there's a hundred thousand other questions underpinning everything that we've already talked about. But uh, that was, that's sort of the problem that we're in, uh, is trying to do a podcast about this. Thank you so much, Professor Ryan Allen. Uh, this has really been a phenomenal start to this thing. And I so appreciate you being willing to do this with us because Again, this whole thing is daunting to begin with. And then the idea of this being the first one and trying to set the table for such a ginormous thing is, is challenging. Yeah. So thank you. My pleasure, Tane. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this installment of our podcast on housing and affordable housing. This episode was produced by Kelsey Dills McGregor with help from Brandon Bode and me, Tane Danger. We'd like to thank our head scriptwriter, Heather Meyer, and actors Duck Washington and Aaron Roberts. Our music is by Dan O. Funding was provided by Prosperity's Front Door. On behalf of everybody with the Theater of Public Policy, thank you so much, and we will see you next time.